Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Faith. My name's Pastor Ricardo. It's always a great pleasure and honor to be back in front of you guys with the task of bringing God's word. The last several times I've had this opportunity, we were in the book of Philippians, um, but not today. We're actually going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're actually going to be finishing chapter 3 today, where last week Pastor Wesley opened up chapter 3 by looking at the first 10 verses. Today we're going to finish it by looking at the last 16 verses. And what we saw last week as we opened up chapter 3 was that Peter and John, these apostles, they performed their, their first miracle, if you will, by, by healing of the lame man, by giving this man the ability to walk. And verse 10 ended with the people around who witnessed this being filled with wonder at amaz- in amazement at what just happened. Today's passage takes up, we kind of pick up exactly where they left off with these people filled with wonder and amazement, recognizing what is happening, trying to figure out what is happening. They come to Peter and John and realizing it was such a great miracle happening, they're trying to attribute, in essence, this miracle to Peter and John. And and Peter, recognizing that, knowing what's about to happen, immediately seizes this moment to kind of preach his second sermon here in the book of Acts takes this time to really point the people to God. And this is what gets me to my main idea that when the opportunities present themselves, we must exalt Christ and call people to repentance. When the opportunities present themselves, because there will be, there will be many, we must exalt Christ and point people and call them to repentance. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. If you need one at home or if you have someone you know who would like a Bible or need one, you're more than welcome to take that home and use that. God's holy and inerrant word reads, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before your holy majestic throne, Father. We thank you for this opportunity to gather today, this morning to hear the word of God preached, to sing songs of praise to you, Lord. Lord, we ask that as we spend these next several moments looking at your word, Father, may it impact in our hearts. May, may it take root the things you are trying to teach us, Father. Open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word, Father. May this be a time where we are growing as individuals and we are growing as a church. Father, we pray for the, for the children's ministries, Lord, and we pray for the teachers today who are going to be teaching them, Lord. We pray that the gospel seeds start to be planted there, Father. May they give opportunities for those who are here with families to preach and proclaim the gospel to their children, Father. Lord, be with us today as we hear your word. Eliminate any distractions, Father, as we take these next several moments to be studying your word, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be edifying to your people and glorifying to you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, we, we start our passage today with Peter realizing what is happening amongst the crowd, that the crowd is running to them, coming, clinging, seeing what's happening, and they want to give Peter and John this credit for this miracle. And as soon as Peter realizes this, he deflects and he points the crowd to the true source of the miracle, which is Jesus Christ. Which gets me to my first point. We exalt Christ by deflecting from ourselves and lifting the name of Christ. We exalt Christ by deflecting from ourselves and lifting the name of Christ. Peter, as soon as he sees that this crowd was running to him, utterly astonished wanting to see what happened to this lame man who has been lame from birth. We see that in verse, in chapter, in verse 2 here. This man has been unable to walk since birth. Recognizing this man who has been sitting here for decades begging for money. And now he's up and he's leaping and he's walking and he's praising God as we read in verse 8. Recognizing what just happened, they all want to know who? By who? And they want to give Peter and John this credit. And as soon as Peter realizes this, he tells them, this is not by me or John. We didn't do this. Jesus did this. He deflects from himself and he points them to Christ. He shifts the focus from himself and John. He even shifts the focus from this man who was healed to give proper praise and glory to God, to Jesus. He's saying, don't look at us. Don't even look at this man. Look at the true source of this miracle, who is Jesus. I would have been briefly tempted to accept the accolades. I would have been briefly 
tempted to be like, yeah, I did this. But not Peter. Peter here shows us what we ought to do, that we ought to deflect glory. We ought to deflect praise from ourselves and always be seeking to show God and give Jesus his proper praise. And Peter does this by proclaiming several truths about Jesus here in the first half of our passage. First, he very bluntly tells them in verse 16, and it is by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, that the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health. He wants them to know immediately that that Jesus is the one who healed the man, not us, not anything we did, not anything that anyone else did. It is Jesus who did this miracle. And then he goes on, he gives them three truths, if you will, about this Jesus. He explains to them who this Jesus is. And the first one is that he is the glorified servant in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He calls Jesus this glorified servant, and by doing so, he's identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah. That is what Peter is seeking, wanting the people to understand here, that this Jesus, who you sent to be killed, who you are guilty of murdering, he is the promised Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord. And we see this language points us back to the book of Isaiah, to those servant songs, which is so prevalent throughout Isaiah 42, all the way up to Isaiah 53. And as we read earlier, right, he's saying, behold, as Isaiah 52, 13 says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. And Jesus is saying, this is that glorified servant. This is who God, who the prophet Isaiah was talking about. This Jesus whom you sent to be murdered is the Messiah. He wants them to know, know that everything that has happened has been, the prophecy has been being fulfilled. And he's claiming that what happened to Jesus was the divine glorification of God to his servant. That this is the God who acted out, not us, not anyone's. God is the one who glorified Jesus. God is the one who raised them from the dead. And because of that, now God has placed Jesus in a position of power, of great honor, value, and excellence. Peter is saying to you that, that God did this. That's his point in trying to drive in these three points here. These three ideas, these three identities of Christ. He's trying to point them that God is at work. Which is why he uses the phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers. He's trying to get the point across to the Israels, Israelites here that it is your God who acted, not anyone else. It is the God who you claim to praise, who you claim to serve. He is the one who glorified his servant by using this type of language. He wants them to understand that it is their covenant God. That acted out. It is their covenant God who made these promises and who has fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ. This phrase here, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, it's very similar. It points us back to Exodus 3, 6, where we have the burning bush and where when God comes to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is once to Peter here by 
quoting this passage, he wants to recall them, God's relationship with the patriarchs and the promises that God has made with his people. We're reminded of God's promise in Genesis 17, 6, where God promised Abraham that he would be the father to the multitude of nations. And by claiming this verse, by using this phrase here, Peter is saying that that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That God has kept his word and that now through Jesus Christ, who is a true offspring of Abraham, we see that in Galatians 3.16, that those who are in Christ are also Abraham's offspring, Galatians 3.29, and that now God is fulfilling that promise through Jesus because he is the promised Messiah. And he goes on and says, and you delivered him over. To be killed. The second truth that Peter shows us about Jesus is that he is the holy and righteous one, verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. By using this terminology, by calling Jesus the holy and righteous one, there's several things that Peter is doing. First, he is showing that Jesus is the divine, the, 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 he's talking to the divinity of Jesus by referring to anyone other than God as the holy and righteous one. That is heresy to the Jewish people. And so by Peter saying this, by Peter calling Jesus the holy and righteous one, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the son of God, that there's the divinity of Jesus. That's what he is proclaiming here. He's also, this is also messianic language, if you will. And we read it in Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Once again, he wants to drive this point across that this Jesus who you sent to be killed, this Jesus who you denied, he is the promised Messiah. You may have not understood that. You might have missed that. But he is the promised Messiah. And Jesus is the glorified servant because he is the holy and righteous one. Another thing that Peter is doing here by referring to Jesus as the holy and righteous one, he really wants to contrast Israel's, their guilt by showing them, by claiming that Jesus was truly innocent, that there was no fault in Jesus that they could find, that they had to allude to lies about him. He's trying to deliver this point across that you killed him. You asked for a murderer to be granted free instead of the innocent, instead of the holy and righteous one. And obviously he's referencing here Barabbas. And he wants them to understand that they chose to murder an innocent one, that they are guilty of that. And he puts again another truth we see here in verse 15. And he says, and you killed the author of life. Or the source of life, as the Holmes Christian Standard Bible says, or the originator of life. And what Peter's talking about here, he's talking about the fact that Jesus is the one who gives us new life. He's referring here to salvation. That Jesus is the one who gives us a new, he's the originator of a new life, and you killed him. But God 
raised him from the dead. And that is the very exact reason why he calls Jesus the glorified servant, because God has glorified him by raising him up from the dead. And it is by his name that this man was healed. And it is by the name of Jesus Christ that we also, too, can be healed. He wants to drive the point to these people who are listening to him that Jesus was the Messiah. And that they are guilty of killing him. So not only is he pointing to these things about Jesus, but he's also very bluntly telling them, you are guilty. He's very bluntly by telling them that they are the reason that Jesus was sent, that they denied him, that they killed him. He is calling out their sin. He wants them to understand that they are guilty of this. In every instance that he calls or he teaches a truth about Jesus here, he couches it with, and you murdered him. You killed him. You asked for a murder to be released. Which is why he can, in verse 19, call them to repent. Which gets me to point number two. We must call people to repentance. That's what Peter does in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Peter does not shy away from telling the crowd that they were responsible for the death of an innocent man. He even says in verse 13, even though you may may have acted in ignorance, Peter isn't trying to whitewash what they did. Peter isn't trying to look around the fact. He's saying, even though you may have not known that Jesus was the Messiah, even though there was evidence to the contrary, even though he had performed miracle after miracle, even though he had taught them that he was the Messiah, you didn't know that. So you're ignorant of that, but you're still guilty of killing an innocent man. And so Peter says, even even though you acted in ignorance, you have to repent and turn away or turn back. This repentance, as I, Howard Marshall, notes, it signifies the act of turning away from one's former life of, of living, especially from the worship of idols, to a new way of life based on faith and obedience to God. Peter is saying, repent, turn away from the way that you are living. Turn away, acknowledge your sin, and turn away from it. That's what Peter has been doing this whole sermon. He says, acknowledge what you did as wrong. Acknowledge that you sinned and killed an innocent man. Acknowledge your sins and turn away from them. In other words, make it complete 180. This idea to repent, it's to stop in your tracks. Make a complete 180. Turn around and go the complete opposite direction to the wave you're going. He's saying, turn from your sins. That is what repentance is. Repentance is turning from sin and towards God. You can't have one or the other. Right? This is why Jesus came. He says this in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness. He makes a passionate call here. He calls them to repentance. You can't call someone to repent without first letting them know that they are in sin. 
And that's what Peter has been doing this whole time, pointing out their sin so that he can here call them to repentance. And what we see here in the remainder of this passage, we see three good things that happen from repentance, three promises from people who actually repent. And then we see one bad promise to those who refuse to repent. The first promise is that your sins may be blotted out, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. It literally means wiped, up, wiped out or, or wiped away. In other words, that all of your list of sins and accusations against you, they are now expunged. They're, they are eradicated if you repent and turn to God. If we were to take a whiteboard today and I was to pick someone out from the crowd and we start to listing all of your sins and we will fill up the whiteboard from one end of the church to the other, this idea that your sins have been blotted out is literally just taking the eraser and just wiping them away. That your sins have been expunged or, or your debt has been canceled, Colossians 2.14. All because of what Christ has done. That's what all Isaiah 52, 13 and 53 is all about. It's all what Jesus, that the fact that the Messiah suffered is the reason why we have the forgiveness of sins. Meaning here for blotting out, it's very similar to what we see in Psalm 51 in verse 9 where David cries out, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Erase them, forgive them. See, when God forgives, he forgives. He wipes our slate clean. He blots them out. And just Peter saying here, this is the promise. If you repent, if you repent and turn to God, your sins will be forgiven. The second promise we have here is in verse 20 where he says, there will be times of refreshing. Right. This is a unique phrase. This is really the only time where we see this phrasing in the scriptures. And it's unique to here, and it's Greek word for refreshing here, can mean the rest, relieve, or, or respite, a refreshment. The only other time we see this specific word show up, really, is in Exodus 8, 15, where, where Pharaoh felt a brief relief or respite from God's judgment. And I think that's what Peter's trying to get at here, that as believers, if we repent and turn from our sins, we will have times in this moment, we will have moments in this life where we will be able to experience peace with God, where we will find relief from having to try to figure this out on our own. Tony Merida writes in his commentary, this is a reminder that those who turn to Jesus find rest. That those who have been trying to earn forgiveness of sins and achieve eternal life simply by simply coming to Jesus, by putting their faith in him and repenting, they will find rest and refreshment for their weary soul. We will have times in this life where we will just Bast in the glory of God and have peace in our hearts because we have been forgiven, right? That's what Jesus promises in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when he says, come to me, all who labor and have you laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. And that's what Peter is talking about here, that if you repent and turn from your sins, you will have times of refreshing in your life. 
The third promise here, Peter mentions in verse 21, is that we can look to the future restoration, whom we haven't must receive until time for restoring of all things about which God spoke. That if you repent and turn, you now have hope. You have hope that God that will send his son again and that he will restore all things to himself. That there is a future restoration coming and that we can hope in that. And we've talked about this before, that that is what gives us the power, the strength to endure through this life, to get through difficult times. It's the fact that we can hope and look to the future coming of Christ. And that can find us rest, that can give us hope in this day in life. And Peter's saying, if you repent and turn from to God, your sins will be forgiven, you will find rest, and you will be given a new hope that Jesus will return according to what the scriptures say. Peter also gives a warning here to anyone who ignores this call to repent and turn. He says in verse 23, they will be destroyed from the people or, or cut off, depending on your translation. The NASB says, you will be utterly destroyed from the covenant people. In other words, you are cut off. You're not a part of God's family. And because of that, you will incur the wrath of of God. You will be judged according to your works, according to your sins, and be utterly destroyed if you refuse to repent and turn and acknowledge God for who he truly is. And this is why we must proclaim the gospel to people. This is why we must call people to repentance because in order for someone to trust in God, they have to repent. You can't trust God and not repent of your sins. You have to lean on him. This is why this is important. If not, people will incur the wrath of God. So as Peter did here, he acknowledges who Jesus is. He tells them who Jesus is, and then he calls them to repentance. That is how we ought to live our life, looking at this sermon from Peter, looking for opportunities to glorify and give God praise, and looking for opportunities to call people to repentance. If we're not doing that, we are not living out the gospel. And as we close today, I'd like to address first those who are sitting here who haven't done that, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who don't have a relationship with the Messiah. And I want to point out, once again, the two responses to the gospel. You either believe and repent, or you reject it. Those are the two only responses. There's no in-between. There's no, let me just wait and see what happens. You either hear the gospel and you repent and turn to God, or you reject it and you're destroyed by the wrath of God. And you may be sitting here and say, I don't know about that. I don't like that. Or if you knew me, you would, you would understand that. If you knew my thoughts, if you knew some of the things I did, if you knew some of the things that I'm currently doing, you wouldn't say that to me. I wouldn't have time now to respond to the gospel, and I would say that's a lie. These people here in our passage today, we see it's evident Peter say, you are guilty. They have Jesus' blood on their hand, and yet, even though they've sinned, even though they're the reason a man was murdered, he still calls them to repentance. There is still time. 
I may not know what you've done, but I can guarantee you there's one person who does, and that is the God of this universe who is omniscient, who's all-knowing, who knows our hearts. All throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus knows the thoughts of man, sometimes even before they knew. So God knows the very worst of you, and he still is calling you to repent. These people who were less than two months away from killing Jesus He's saying, there is still time for you. Repent and turn away. And so there's still time for you to repent and turn, for you to have your sins wiped away, for you to have peace that comes from trusting in Jesus. All of that promises that I listed later in our passage, the blotting out of sins, the the refreshing, the The looking forward to future restoration, that's all available to you today, non-believer, if you put your faith and trust in the works of Jesus Christ. If you stop trusting in yourself, if you stop trusting in this world and lean to God, you will find peace today because Jesus is truly, as Peter states, the Son of God. He is truly the Messiah. He is truly the one who the scriptures have been proclaiming will come since the book of Genesis. And if you put your trust in him and his works, the person who walked this earth, the person who's never sinned, person who followed God's law perfectly to the T, who suffered on the cross, who bore your griefs, who carried your sorrows, who was pierced for your sins. If you put your faith and trust in his works and the fact that he died on the cross, the fact that he was ro- rose again from the dead three days later, if you put your faith, if you put your trust in the whole entirety of Jesus' works, you will have peace with God today. If you haven't, or if you're not sure, we would love to talk to you about what that means. Maybe you're sitting here like, I, I might have said a prayer when I was little, but I don't know what I did, or I don't know if I'm still a believer, I really would like some clarification. If you're there, we would love to talk to you about what that means, what it looks like. We would love to go back and forth and answer any questions you may have regarding the gospel. But don't let another day go by where you're not asking those questions, where you're not getting some answers. We would love to do that for you. You can go on our website. You can go on the back of the bulletin. You will find our emails and numbers. And we would love to set a time to meet with you to talk about the gospel. But don't let another day go by where you're not responding something at least and to my brothers and to my sisters in Christ we must proclaim the full gospel to others Peter here does not shy away sometimes we want to skip over the hard things when talking to people about the gospel maybe we won't we don't want to mention sins we don't want to mention that they're going to be judged Right? But Peter did not shy away. People are looking these people in the face, knowing what might happen. He calls them, he points out their sin, saying, You are a murderer. And then he calls them to repentance. We can't call people to repentance if they don't know that they need to repent of something. So when we are going about our days in lives, we're going about talking to people about Jesus, we have to preach the whole gospel. People have to repent and trust in Jesus. Those are two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. If you're you're trying to do that, essentially you're asking people to embrace Jesus while also embracing the very sins that he died for. 
We must call people. We must proclaim the whole gospel. And to an extent, the gospel starts with bad news. It starts by telling people that they are sinners. That they are guilty of their sins and they will be judged according to their sins. And we don't like to have that conversation. We don't want to tell people that. We feel like people will tell us, well, you don't, that's not loving. I can make an argument that that's probably the most loving thing you can do for someone is to point out all their shortcomings and then call them to repentance. We can't call people to repentance if we're not first showing them where they fall short, showing them why they need the forgiveness of God, showing them how they've fallen short. So we must call out sin. And once we do that, once we've essentially started with the bad news, and then we shift to the good news, that God's grace, that his forgiveness is available even to the worst of sinners. That God's grace, that his forgiveness is available to those who repent. You go from the bad to the good. That we can go on and tell them that, that from there we can go on and tell them all that Jesus did. We can tell them about the life of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life. We can tell them about how he died on the cross. And how he rose again from the grave and conquered death. And that he will come again to judge those who reject him. Don't let another day go by where we sell the gospel short to people by not proclaiming the full, the whole gospel, but only focusing on the parts that might tickle someone's ears, but not getting to the heart of the problem, their sin. We must call people to repentance. But in order to do that, we must point out their sin. So let's proclaim the whole gospel, not some of it, not half of it, but all of it. That is our call as believers. That is how we make disciples of the nations, by proclaiming the whole gospel and not just the parts we like or we think other people will like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you that as believers we can sit here today, Lord, and Say that our sins have been forgiven, Father. That our slate has been wiped clean, Father. And that we in this life, in the middle of hardships, in the middle of difficulties, we can find peace in the fact that we have been forgiven, Father. May our souls, may we be reminded, may we be refreshed with that truth, Father. That you have blotted out each and every one of our sins, Father. As we read in Psalm 103, that you've thrown them, you've casted them as far as the east is from the west, Father. That you do not remember our sins once you've forgiven them, Father. You're not holding it, trying to bring them back up, Father. But you have truly eradicated, you have truly canceled our debt, Father. May we rest in that. May that truth, may the, may the truth of those words be what gives us life today, Father. May the truth of those words be what encourages us to continue to move on and persevere in this life, Father. Help us to share those words with people, Lord. Give us the wisdom, give us the strength, the discernment, the boldness to proclaim the whole gospel. And not some of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And as people said, amen.